the centennial year, we often, uh, you know, we're doing things a bit differently this year, so often I preach on a single theme throughout the year, but this year I'm preaching on uh, seven of the great themes which unite Asbury throughout our centennial, our 100-year history. Uh, so I'll be preaching about entire sanctification, about uh, holiness, missions evangelism, spirit-filled life, village education, quite a few themes uh, throughout the year. And today we're looking at uh, the Word of God and our commitment to the Word of God. As you know, our founding motto is the whole Bible for the whole world. Uh, it'll take at least two or three sermons to unpack exactly what was meant by the phrase the whole Bible, but we'll at least start off a bit of it today. Uh, the Christian faith is founded on the doctrine of revelation. Uh, we believe that God has revealed himself in an act of self-disclosure. I can quote the late uh, Francis Schaeffer, God is there and he is not silent. I love that. Uh, God has spoken to us, and without such a divine initiative, we would not be able to know God. We, of course, believe that the Christian faith is reasonable, kind of in a broad sense, but we don't believe that we could reason our way to the Christian gospel. God must reveal it to us. Uh, this particular... Um, Part one of this, this series is focused on really the three ways in which God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. We find that God is so eager to reveal himself that he's chosen or given three ways to do it. And so we're going to look at all three of those ways uh, today, three ways or forms. And I want to do it against the backdrop of really two uh, things. One is the idea of being uh, Paul being shipwrecked, this famous storm passage. There's, of course, uh, several storm passages in the Bible. We, of course, know Jonah. We know about Jesus and the storm on the Sea of Galilee. But this storm is really, really an important one. It's told in great length in the text. It's quite remarkable uh, what we can learn from this storm. So I'm going to bring up a little bit about the storm passage in Acts uh, 27 that's so, so fascinating. The other metaphor I want to use is that of a compass. A compass... Um, I don't know if we have any Boy Scouts in our midst, uh, or maybe Girl Scouts did the same thing, I don't know, but when I was a Boy Scout, in order to earn a certain merit badge, I became an Eagle Scout, and in order to get to that rank, you had to, at one point, be like basically blindfolded in the course of night. They put you out in the middle of a forest, and yes, the weekend I had to do this, it was pouring down rain. I was put out with nothing except uh, just, you know, my clothing, a little tiny knapsack, and I had a compass and a, uh, a, a, a map, a small, small map, a topographical map. And the, the job was, you, I was probably maybe four to five hours away from the ranger station, so I had to get to the ranger station next day with nothing but the compass. And it was pouring down rain. Did I mention that? <laughs> and, of course... Um, I did, I did that. I was able to do that. I, I, I landed directly onto the, to the, the station. And the reason was because I had a compass. And a compass is able to give direction regardless of what's going on, what kind of storms are happening. And part of my thesis today is that we are in a cultural storm, a bit like what Paul experienced, and we'll see that our closing hymn draws on the idea of a storm and God's word guidance in the storm. And God has given us a compass to guide us. And the difference between the compass I had as a Boy Scout when I was like 15 years old versus today is this compass 
God has not one, not two, but three directional arrows to help guide us uh, to himself. The first arrow uh, of the compass is what we call general or universal natural revelation, different terms for this. But the idea is there's certain ways in which God has universally disclosed himself. One of the, one of the points that Wesleyans make, though this doctrine is held by all Christians, but Wesleyans in particular want to emphasize that God has done some things universally. That's why we, we, we actually agree with total depravity, but we believe provenient grace is a universal act of God where God, in his own free act, discloses himself in a certain way to the whole world. Now, that, of course, happens in many ways, and we can not mention all of these, but we opened our, text, our sermon today, or our, our worship service, with Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19 is one of the great examples of general revelation. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. His expanse is proclaiming the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night's not reveals knowledge, yet there is no speech, nor their words, but their voice is heard to the ends of the earth. This is the opening declaration of Psalm 19, which, by the way, was also the prelude. Thank you, Julie, for Psalm 19. If you didn't recognize it, you missed it. One of the great Psalm 19 preludes. It's a way of declaring that creation has a voice. Creation is pointing us uh, to himself. So in the middle of this storm in Acts 27, it's really interesting because in the course of this storm, you'll notice they slowly cast off all the stuff they relied upon. So in the course of the storm, they get increasingly panicky. Don't forget, Paul is a prisoner in the midst of all of this. Paul's like a nobody, he's a prisoner, but suddenly he's the leader kind of giving them information, what's going on, because Paul has information. And so they are eventually, they're in, of course, a total panic, and uh, this storm is in some ways a testimony to God's power. And sometimes God allows storms to blow through, not only physical storms, but all kinds of storms in order to get people's attention. Uh, it's not easy for us to accept that, but at times there's cultural storms, there's, there's theological storms, there's ecclesiastical storms, as has happened in the UMC right now. These are big storms that kind of blow up and it forces us to think about things differently and reassess things and listen to God. And so this, is, this physical storm, which is part of general revelation, is a lot different from our idea like, oh, of a beautiful Kentucky sunset you know, over the, the nice hills or whatever. This is a storm which gets your attention in a different way. And so, of course, they start, um, they, first they throw over, I love the fact they do this kind of periodic, uh, serially, they first they throw over all their cargo. This is the stuff that belongs to everybody else. And then, as they get more desperate, they throw over their own tackle. This is the stuff that belongs to them. This is their, the source of their livelihood. Do you feel the desperation? And then they thoroughly start throwing over all the food. All right, so you, if, you're not, you know, if you've never been in a storm like this, you don't really fully get the, the sense of panic in the midst of all this. If you start throwing your tackle overboard and throwing your food overboard, you are in a desperate situation. And so Paul, in the midst of this, is completely calm because he has a word from the Lord. Which brings us really to the second arrow of the compass, which is God's special revelation. Now in this case, the Lord spoke to Paul in verse 23. It says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you lives of all that sail with you. Now that's not a message that comes through nature. 
This is a specific word from God. So the scriptures represent God's self-disclosure in an inscripturated way that we now, of course, have as the word of God before us. Now, if you remember Psalm 19, we, we, we notice how Psalm 19 begins with general revelation. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. But then it, as it goes on, it transitions to a declaration of special revelation that God is giving us his law and his statutes. Now, if you ever had time to really read through Psalm 119, anybody done this recently? I see a few nodding heads, a few people wondering, is it possible? <laughs> but Psalm 119 is 176 verses. I think Dr. Stone actually uses it in his like devotionals, which must mean he has 176 classes. It's amazing. But anyway, the point is, is that you, this is a very long psalm, but what it is, it's a rotation that I think it's only uh, six or seven verses of the 176 that do not contain one of eight words, Hebrew words, about the law that rotate through Psalm 119. So it's a really well-known psalm. It's done in his acrostic. I won't go into all that, but Psalm, one, psalm 19 is a look, a miniature version of Psalm 119. So Psalm 19 in this portion con condenses. So if you can't read Psalm 119, you can read the condensed version. In a few verses, Psalm 19, it talks about how the law, the statutes, the precepts, the ordinances, it actually mentions four of the seven words of Psalm 119. The point being, it's trying to help us to see God's word is trustworthy. God's word can give you guidance. God's word is light to your eyes. All of the great things we find in Psalm 119 are rehearsed or summarized there. Now, our text in the New Testament text is where Paul declares in his letter to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, the, the challenge with that translation is that it undersells, underspeaks what actually is said in that text. Because at least as I hear the word, when I hear, I'm at least in English, when I hear the word inspiration, it's a pretty broad word. You know, people say, oh, I went down to Lexington. I went down and heard a, like a symphony. It was so inspiring. Or someone reads a, reads a poem to you. They wrote, oh, that is inspiring. Or a Ben Witherington sermon. Wow, it's, it's inspiring. Well, nothing against Ben Witherington's sermon, inspiring sermon, but this is a word much greater than that. This is the word theoponoustos. God breathed. God breathed. Theoponoustos. All scripture is God-breathed. What it's saying is that scripture actually is the inspirited uh, word of God that is brought to us in inscripted form. So this means that when we talk about the scriptures, we can refer to it as the word of God. That's a very, very powerful proclamation, and you certainly can't say that with anything else that we say or write. Now, when I was um, out of seminary, like you, I graduated, and 1984 was my ordination moment. Now, I was at a seminary, knew I'd gone through all the process, you know, all the hoops you jumped through, all the different you know, tests and examinations. They even gave me a psychological examination, which proved I was just barely sane. <laughs> but I've been through all of that, and they finally approved and said, yes, you can be ordained, you're going to be ordained, and you go down to this church in Atlanta, and all the other ordinands were going to arrive there. And if you've been ordained, you know this routine. And so I was pastoring a church in North Georgia Mountains. I was two and a half hours from Atlanta. 
I drive all the way down to Atlanta for my big ordination. My parents are there, grandparents are there, you know, all the family's there. <clears throat> I get there, I go into the, the room where I was told to go, and to my shock, all the fellow, fellow, you know, men and women that are with me all had on robes. Like robes. I must have missed the fine print. I had no idea that I was supposed to bring a robe. I didn't even own a robe. And so I was sitting looking around thinking, well, you know, can you get ordained like in a suit? And they're like, no, no, you have to have a robe. I'm like, what? You have to have a robe. I thought, oh my goodness, three years of seminary education, all those bills I paid, all the hoops I went through, all the forms I filled out, doctoral statements, and I'm going to be stopped by not having a robe. This was like the final barrier, no robe. So the pastor said, don't worry, he said, uh, I have an extra robe in my office. We walk in there, well, the pastor is like six foot seven. <laughs> he could be in the NBA. We go in there, and I'm like, no, this is not going to work for me. I said, I'll never get up the steps. I'd be like Saul and, you know, David in Saul's armor. So they finally said, okay, what are we going to do? And I said, well, surely I can get ordained without a robe. They're like, you cannot get ordained without a robe. It's like, this, this is like really crucial, apparently. You have to be robed to be ordained by God. I never knew. It's somewhere in here. It's got to be here somewhere. I just never found it. So I, they finally said, wait a minute, we have some acolyte robes. Now, if you are from a low church, you don't know what that means, but the other ones are laughing already. An acolyte robe is what the children wear when they come in with those candles, candelabras, and they light the candles and all that in service to have those kind of like formal deals. This was like a little black acolyte robe. They squeezed me into this robe. I had to be careful when I knelt down not to burst out of it. I was ordained in an acolyte robe, but I had a robe on. The bishop laid hands on me and said three things to me. He ordained me to preach the word of God, to administer the sacraments, and uphold the discipline. Isn't that interesting? And I've sought to be honorable to all three of those. Well, then when I got up, you know, I thought, well, here I am. I'm now ordained. Took the robe off, went back to work, continued preaching the gospel. But I noticed uh, in my, by the way, when I got up, I was surprised I was given this right here. Now, this is really interesting. If you want to see it afterwards, you come up, I'm sure it's of great interest to all of you. But this is the succession of ordination. Everybody's giving one of these. Maybe they still do it. But this shows you uh, my ordination. Like Thomas Coke laid hands on Francis Asbury. Yes, Francis Asbury, who went to William McKinnon. goes down this list, and finally, my bishop laid hands on me. This shows you the like six steps of removal between me and Francis Asbury. All right, so I thought, wow, you know, this is like official. And I remember when I got into the ministry, I, of course, met pastors, you all have the same thing, who didn't preach the word of God, who didn't uphold the sacraments properly, who didn't uphold the discipline. This is very common today. And I remembered a big 16th century debate about apostolic succession. Because in the Protestant movement, as you know, one of the things that was charged against us was that we weren't really properly ordained because we weren't in apostolic succession because they could show you going all the way back to Peter. If you ever go to the Vatican, you can see the Pope, you know, they have the big, big stone thing that shows the current Pope all the way back to Peter. Like, that is apostolic succession. Well, I remember what the reformers said about that. They said, you know what? 
What makes you an apostolic succession is only one thing. I want everybody in this room to hear this. What makes you, if you get ordained and you go out into the ministry of the world to minister the gospel, what gives you apostolic succession is if you preach and teach what the apostles preached and taught. That's apostolic succession. If you don't preach and teach what the apostles taught and preached, then you're not in apostolic succession. It doesn't matter who laid hands on you. At the end of the day, it is our fidelity to the Word of God, our fidelity to the, what is passed down to us. This is what we must be true to. Now, when I was at the Falls College, um, they, of course, they were a conservative college, and they were very concerned. It's someone that got complaints that, you know, in the library, there are books in the library that are, may not exactly be right, portraying doctrines we can't accept. Of course, you know, any library, including ours, we have all kinds of books portraying all kinds of stuff that's important for you to study and learn in order to be able to respond to various charges, et cetera. So our books are, libraries full of all kinds of books, but this was a matter of concern there. And so they decided that uh, they, they decided to pass, a, they passed a rule, the trustees did, to get some stickers you put in the front of the book, which says the following, the views of this book do not necessarily reflect the views of the faculty or trustees of Tacoma Falls College. So they got a bunch of these printed up. Well, then the question arose, naturally, which books do we put them in? <laughs> and so students, of course, very, very clever, and students would immediately say, you know, if you open a book and it did have a sticker, okay, this is one of the books that they're not really happy with. If it saw no sticker, it would mean that this book was, you know, it was, uh, was, was a good book. They didn't want to have that. So finally they decided, you know what? we should put the sticker in every single book. <laughs> Just to cover our bases on air, because who knows, who's gonna read all the trustees gonna read all the books? So they got, they got thousands of these stickers. And some you know, dutiful library staff, God bless library staff, <laughs> they went through every book in the Tacoma Falls College Library and put this sticker in front of every book. The problem was, every theological library contains Bibles. And this staff was told, just put it in every book. <laughs> and I cannot tell you my surprise when I open up a Bible from the line that says, this book <laughs> does not necessarily contain information that is endorsed by the Board of Trustees, etc. Okay, well, I hope that you do not have an invisible sticker in your Bible which says the views of this book not necessarily affect the views of this pastor or this leader of the church. Because we talk a lot about the cultural storms and the, you know, all that, the, you know, the, the various kind of atheistic storms and all that, the four horsemen and on and on and on, but the real challenge is the ecclesiastical wiliness. The church may be very, very funny when to play both sides of all this. And so part of what is the Asbury tradition for 100 years, and while we're still here, is our enduring commitment to the Word of God. The third and final arrow of the compass, of course, is the Word made flesh. Uh, this is also really important because we don't simply believe the Bible is some kind of book of magic. We don't believe it's full of like mantras that you recite and it creates some kind of power on its own. No, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God precisely because it is, is verified and empowered through the power of the triune God. And so Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. The, uh, the Muslims know only the word made text. 
well, we believe there's something greater. I mean, if one arrow is directional, one arrow is largely informational, this is relational. God has revealed not just simply things about himself, but revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we proclaim Christ to the world. And so this is really important to understand the relationship between the Word of God and the Word made flesh. So when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River, the Father spoke from heaven. He did not say, though it was true, this is the greatest teacher who ever taught an ethic. Or this is the greatest carpenter who ever hewn a piece of stone or wood. I mean, all those things could have been said, but he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the manifestation of God in human flesh. That's what we believe. That's the incarnation. This is what John says, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, our hands have touched. This is whom we proclaim to you. So we have the first creation. God spoke the world, the new creation, not simply God audible words from Mount Sinai, but the enfleshed words of the word made flesh. And so as the people of God, we have to always remember that God is reverberating throughout the universe. And so much of what's in confusion today, especially around issues of gender, for example, is not because people have lost the capacity to hear the word of God, which I think we immediately quickly go there. The Bible says this or teaches that. Actually, this culture long ago quit listening to the word of God. This actually goes back to even more basic fundamental box, the capacity to hear creation itself, the very general revelation. We shouldn't assume that because God has universally revealed himself in creation that everyone fully receives it or hears it. There is so much that has to be revealed and understood in creation itself. Of course, the Word of God, and ultimately in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. So this is all before us. This is part of our opportunity and challenge as the people of God to understand the power of God's Word speaking out, His voice going forth into the world, calling the world to Himself. Let us pray.